I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and we got a good show for you today. We've got a new feature that we're starting on this show on this episode called Moto Moguls. And what Moto Moguls is, is our way of featuring and highlighting anyone who's made significant contributions to the motorcycle industry, making it what we know it as today. So today we've got our first episode of Moto Moguls. We also have Spencer Hill, who is the gear dude. He's the guy who does gear reviews for some online magazines and a, and a print one as well. He also does them starting with this episode for us here adventure rider radio and spencer's going to be looking at a tent that he took out and tested severely not just popping it up in his backyard but he took it out on a trip where he ran it through snow wind rain and sleet and he's got the full story coming up stick around for that one you're also going to hear from lawrence hacking from lawrence hacking's overland adventure lawrence is well known in the motorcycle industry he's been racing since 1971 he was the first canadian to finish the dakar on a motorcycle and he's done tons of racing since then and he runs his own event called lawrence hacking's overland adventure which is a yearly event in Ontario, Canada. Stick around for that and more coming up. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motortour.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Moto Machines offers luggage systems, protection, windshields, custom ABS plastic parts, and more for over 700 different models dating back to the 1970s. Moto Machines carries the widest selection of luggage available on the market, and all accessories are bolt-on ready for a custom fit. Visit them at motomachines.com. That's motomachines.com. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coates. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Rust. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. <laughs> this is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This is a new feature for Adventure Rider Radio. It's called Moto Moguls. And with Moto Moguls, we're going to feature people here who have made a significant contribution to the motorcycle industry, making it what we know it as today. 
And today we're going to feature David Peterson of Best Rest Products. Now, he's one of our show supporters, but that's not the reason we have him on today. We have him on because of the things that he's done as far as his inventions go for motorcycles. And the one probably that you've heard of before, at least on this show, is his cycle pump, which is an amazing heavy-duty motorcycle pump to pump up our tires. But he's got a bunch of other products there as well. And he's done other things. He's written a book. He's developed a, um, a motorcycle route called the Northwest Passage. And he's got a lifelong love of motorcycling. Now, David hasn't always had Best Rest products. He worked as a police officer. He owned a commercial cabinet shop. But he has always had that love of motorcycling. And that love started at a very young age and continued on to, well, even when he met his wife. In fact, when I met my wife on our first date, I said, listen, if you don't love motorcycles or if you can't learn to love them, this relationship's not going to go anywhere. How's that for having your priorities set straight? Here it is, David Peterson from Best Rest Products on Adventure Rider Radio's Moto Moguls. So I'm speaking with David Peterson from Best Rest Products, and of course you know him as uh, one of our show sponsors. That's not the reason we have him on today. Uh, We have him on today to talk about is um, a lifelong love of motorcycling that starts at quite a young age. David, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me start off by asking you, when did you first get on a bike? (laughs) Well, as, as best I can recall... It was about the age of four, and it was uh, on the back of my dad's motorcycles, and uh, we used to ride around on the back of, I think he had a tote goat for a while, and then he had some little Honda 50s, and some of my first memories are hanging on to the back of dad, and the next memory was falling off the back as he was doing hill climbs and, and coming up with a smile on my face, and that kind of started the the uh, the bug so to speak and uh i've been involved in motorcycles well now for 55 years i guess what was your first bike and so that was your first riding experience what was the first bike that you got well the first bike i had i guess was the the bikes that i got from my uncle's honda shop um he had one of the first honda dealerships in southern california or the u.s i guess and we used to get bikes from him and we race up and down the alleys behind the shop and uh, have great fun go round and round in circles Um, crashed into a few wood fences but all the time i was having a great time Um, he had triumph and harley and uh, bsa motorcycles and uh, bull taco and uh, you go into a shop and smell the the rubber and the gasoline and it was a great experience So we moved from Southern California to Montana, and uh, at the age of 14, I uh, saved my money and uh, bought my first motorcycle, which was a Honda SL100, and it was beautiful emerald green and uh, everything I ever wanted, and, you know, from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed, I, I thought motorcycles. I was either riding it or I was thinking about it or I was working on it. Well, the SL100 was a uh, a fairly small bike, I guess, but it was it was a I guess it was a dual sport bike, really, wasn't it? It was, you know, as as dual sport as they made them in those days. You know, a slightly upswept pipe, uh, slightly trials type tires, and I was a small lad at that time, and the the bike seemed big. Um, I've been on that bike since I've been an adult, and it seems so tiny. So uh, at the time, it was good for me. 
the neat thing is, at 19, you decide that all of a sudden you're going to take a trip to Mexico. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, visions of world travel, but I was just a farm boy, and uh, you know the world was big and and uh, a little bit scary, I guess, for me. But uh, I got a Suzuki GT 550. It was a three-cylinder two-stroke, and I loaded up the bike and uh, laid out some maps and said, I'm going to Mexico. And so uh, sometime in March, in between blizzards, I found a, a stretch of weather that allowed me to get uh, through the mountain passes and down into Utah and then went down into Arizona, uh, went through the Grand Canyon, you know, went through the deserts, uh, went down to the border. And when I got across the border, that was a real eye-opening experience for this this. Uh, farm kid. Uh, never seen the poverty, you know, never seen people that drive like that. And uh, I spent a day down there and uh, probably prudent that I turned around and went back across the border and uh, finished my journey by going through California and up along the coast and Oregon and back into Montana. But it was, uh, for me, it was quite a, quite an experience. Oh, and that's a solo trip, too. I mean, at 19, that's a, that's a young age to be, and like you said, your farm boy, not really experienced. Had you traveled at all before that? Uh, not really, you know, other than I'd done a lot of uh, camping and backpacking, so I knew how to, you know, pack stuff and, you know, how to survive and, you know, take care of myself. An interesting story, when I, when I got that bike ready to go on the trip and my folks were standing there wishing me goodbye on the porch, I had everything loaded in a duffel bag stacked vertically on a sissy bar and I swung my leg over that bike and the weight of the of the <laughs> the duffel took me right over on the side so uh, that was my first experience with uh, how to pack a bike and how not to and your parents probably thought oh my god well, what, what are we doing letting them go well, I guess they couldn't very well stop you at that point no they couldn't but uh, it all had a happy ending and uh, you know there were no uh, no accidents other than uh, trying to do a mountain climb and drop the bike and broke a mirror, but uh, it was a good experience. And actually, uh, one of the big experiences on that trip was stopping in to have the bike worked on somewhere in Utah, I guess. And they were selling BMW motorcycles. And as I waited for my bike to get worked on, I, I had a chance to look over this BMW, and it was a beautiful thing. I think it was the R90 and it had that beautiful smoke uh, orange gas tank on it. And I spent hours just looking over that and saying, someday, someday I'll have a BMW. And that kind of started a bug that, that took 20 years, uh, but I finally got one. What was it about the BMW that really got you when you stand there in the showroom looking at it? Was it reputation or was it the actual look of the bike? I didn't even know what the reputation was. I, ju I just had an eye for the detail of how things were made and, you know, the engineering and the, the strength of the parts. And as I looked at this and I looked at that and I compared it to what I knew from, you know, the Honda bikes that I'd had, I said, wow, this thing is, is really built. Uh, this is the kind of quality that I'd like to have someday when I can afford it. And, uh, you know, it, it stuck in my mind that that's, uh, that's a pretty good thing. The cylinders sticking out the side didn't strike you as really odd looking at first? Well, of course they did. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, when I looked at the way they were made, I mean, it just, you know, you look at those details at the impressionable age of 19, and it, it stuck, stuck in my mind. Uh, 
you know, that's something I wanted to have. It was too big a bike for me at that time, but uh, yeah, it was it was on my bucket list. That's for sure. After that, you became a police officer, and you were lucky enough to to ride. A, I think at KZ one thousand. That's right. I was a sheriff for five years and a, a police officer for ten. And in those ten years, uh, I rode motors for I think over three years and uh, Kawasaki one thousand police bike. And uh, you know, I couldn't believe that I was that lucky. Here I'm getting paid to go out and ride a motorcycle. And if they only knew how I felt, <laughs> I mean, I'd have done it for free. <laughs> uh, you know, go to work in the morning and get to ride around all day long. Uh, didn't usually have to handle calls. You know, we worked traffic. Uh, I wrote a lot of tickets. I I regret them now, <laughs> but uh, but boy, I had a great time. You know, I would I would actually take that that police bike and go off on the trails around the town and uh, foot trails and, you know, ride along the creeks and climb hills and do stuff like that. And boy, if my sergeant ever knew where I'd gone with that bike, I'd have, I'd have probably been walking the next day. But uh, it was a good time. And, uh, uh, you know, the experience of riding that and honing my skills, you know, I'd learned to ride on the dirt with small bikes and now I was on the street with a bigger bike. But uh, you know, I, I got to the point where I was, you know, very proficient. Even though I wasn't a tall guy, I was 5'8", um, I could still handle the bike through finesse instead of through brute force. And what was the KZ-1000 like? Well, it was uh, it was good for speeds up to 70. Um, it had an oscillation problem because of either the steering angle or the frame geometry, something. And if you got up in the 80s, 90s, which we seldom did unless we were chasing somebody, the bike would get into this oscillation, this wobble. And uh, uh, Kawasaki recognized that, and they came through the country, and they installed a damper on the rear radio box to try to to uh, uh, cut out the oscillation. Um, so generally, we kept it, you know, uh, you know, between 25 and 60 miles an hour in town. That was enough. It was a sweet handling bike, very nimble. I mean, you could we'd go out and practice, and you could do full lock turns, scraping the uh, the floorboard, and take your hands off the bars and just go around in circles. I mean, it was it was really good. We'd practice skidding and turning and braking, and uh, it was it was a fun bike to ride. Eventually, you retired from the police force, and um, you, you said you ended up in Seattle. How did that happen? Well. As I was growing up, my dad had a cabinet business, and uh, you know I had my law enforcement career, and then was doing that, and then he moved out to Seattle. After I got out of law enforcement, um, I was looking for something to do. I went to work in that shop and eventually purchased it from him when he retired. Um, but him having that established business brought me out here to Seattle, and. Uh, uh, you know, moved from Montana and moved to Seattle. And I remember living in Montana for a while and saying, boy, I'd never moved to Seattle. It rains all the time. And next thing I know, I'm living out there. <laughs> but uh, being out here has got some advantages. Usually the weather's pretty good. You can generally ride most of the year if you don't mind getting wet. And uh, it's got, you know, great mountains and along the coast, so you can ride along the coast and uh, a lot of, lot of variety of terrain. So it's good opportunities for trail bike riding, which I still do a lot of, and street riding and adventure riding. And, 
it's uh, it's been a good move. You finally got your uh, your R one hundred RT when you came to Seattle too. That was a a big thing for you. Yeah, I uh, you know I'd moved out here and was working at the shop and said, well, I think it's time for me to fulfill that dream. So I went down to the local shop and found a good used R one hundred RT, beautiful red candy apple color and uh you know i was i rode that thing everywhere in washington i think i rode every paved road in the state with my wife on back and uh you know we'd have our gear and we'd camp out um pretty rudimentary camping gear at that time but uh you know we had a great time the trouble is that we came to the end of the paved road and here's gravel and gravel didn't scare me, but I didn't want to hurt the bike. But the the allure of uh, adventure riding on forest roads was too great. So we started riding more and more on the uh, on the gravel. And uh, the poor old girl, not the wife, but the motorcycle, <laughs> uh, she was starting to show signs of uh, uh, you know fiberglass fatigue and you know things coming loose. And so I realized I needed to get something that was more appropriate to uh, that type of riding. And so I got a BMW R1100GS. I think it was a 96. And boy, that really opened the doors. Um, you know, we could go anywhere. The paved roads were were easy and fun. The bike handled wonderfully. And when we hit the, the gravel or the dirt, um, we just we just kept going. I guess at this point, once you got your R100RT, you are a BMW man. Well, I am, but I, you know, I can also speak other motorcycle languages. I've got a, a KTM 450EXC. I've got a, a Honda XR650. So, uh, you know, I, I have a broad range of uh, of bikes, but I like the BMW. It's been good to me. You've, you've, you're riding around with your wife in the back, especially when you're riding the R100RT. And this is sort of when, uh, I'm, I'm curious about this, you started doing little tinkering projects with, with bike stuff. Um, this is sort of the start of best rest with your folding backrest. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, she's on the back of the bike, and she always felt a little uncomfortable because she had no back support. And so I said, well, I can fix that. I'm a handy guy. So I tinkered with this and tinkered with that, and I, I came up with a very rudimentary backrest that, that bolted onto the uh, the rear grab rail, and that made her comfortable. And uh, then I said, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go to Australia and ride down there. So I'm going to take this backrest that I made for her, and I'm going to make a system that allows me to put it behind me, the rider, so that I can use it for me and then when I get back home I can bolt it on and use it for her and so I came up with a first design and created that and went to Australia and rode with a buddy down there for a few weeks and when I got back um, other people saw what I'd done and said well hey could you make one for me I said yeah I can do that Um, that was kind of the beginnings of uh, best rest products Uh, the name comes from the first product, which was a backrest, and we thought it was the best, so we put the name together and Best Rest. Um, kind of a funny name. It sounds like a betting company, but really it's adventure motorcycle gear. 
So it's really neat. You didn't have a designing background or anything. You, I mean, basic mechanical skills or maybe advanced mechanical skills, but um, you're really just sort of just a guy hacking away in his garage then. Well, a little bit above that, perhaps. Um, being in commercial cabinetry, uh, working with design and and assembly and wood for the most part, although some metals, um, I had a very inquisitive and mechanical mind. And, you know, my dad trained me well on how to put things together, take them apart, figure them out. And uh, so I was able to put this stuff down on paper and uh, come up with some rather clever ideas. In fact, um, we filed a patent for the backrest, and, and we have a U.S. patent on that design, not just a, a, a design patent, but a mechanical patent. So, um, you know, that was the first product. And we we thought, well, gosh, we could start a, a company. If it paid for our gasoline on weekends, that would be great. And little did we know how, how far that would take us. But uh, having the ability to cut things and machine things at the shop uh, gave me a leg up as far as as making what I needed to uh, to make the backrest and make other products in the future. At what point does it does it become you know something bigger? I mean, you you um, you've made more products than the the folding backrest. Uh, what was the what was the light that went off for you? Well, we had the backrest and we had a series of luggage racks that were designed for. Uh, BMWs for the backs of BMWs, and that was a fairly limited market. You know, we sold a modest number of them, and uh, we went to a motorcycle rally, a BMW motorcycle rally in Toronto. And after spending the weekend showing the products and selling this and that, I I said to the wife, I need to make something that everybody can use, regardless of brand. Something like razor blades or, you know, toothbrushes. Something that every motorcyclist would want. And I said. You know, somebody needs to make a real compact motorcycle tire inflator. I'm going to make a tire inflator. And my wife looked at me and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I enjoy telling that story because (laughs) she has to eat her words. Um, Shortly thereafter, I developed uh, the cycle pump, which is a motorcycle tire inflator. And we sell those things all over the world, and I think we're we're about thirty thousand units into it now, and uh, you know it's it's recognized as the the premier motorcycle tire inflator. And you said you've sort of stopped counting at this point of how many you've made. Yeah, you know it used to be something that we could boast about, and and now it's it's not so much that because we've we've earned our stripes, so to speak. And uh, we just keep making them one at a time there at my shop in Mount Lake Terrace, which is just north of Seattle. It's interesting because, you know, somebody might not think that uh, um, the, the tire inflator is very um, exciting, but all you have to do, and I'm sure most of us have done this, is buy one of those cheap inflators and go use it a few times and find out it lets you down afterwards. They, they always quit. I mean, my, my one, uh, I had the little, one of those little slime ones plugged in and my friend used it. He had trouble mounting his tire in, in Lillooet in British Columbia here on a trip we were doing. Boy, after that one time using it, um, it was toast. So all of a sudden, then you start hunting around thinking, well, I, I need to find something more reliable. But that's uh, that's funny. And I, I bet your wife cringes every time you tell that story. Well, she thinks it's funny now, but uh, I've probably rubbed it in enough that uh, 
she she doesn't get the humor in it. But uh, yeah, we we get a lot of customers that call us with exactly the same story, and you know they they want to get the best now. And kind of like riding gear, you know, you, you buy what you can afford at the time, and uh, later on you get another set. You kind of move up, and then you you finally end up with a top uh, top shelf uh, set of riding gear. Um, Truth of it is that if, if you'd have bought the top shelf stuff the, be, the first time at the beginning, you'd have saved money in the long run. If your inflator lets you down on top of a mountain or in the middle of some you know, lonely stretch of road, um, that's a big disappointment. Yeah. So for that reason, we put a lot of time and effort and engineering into the cycle pump and the other gear that we, we make and sell. Um, you know, we don't just sell stuff so that we can you know, turn money. We, we make stuff and sell stuff because we, we try to provide the best quality item that me, myself, or my riding buddies can use. And, uh, so we approach the, the product in that regard. It's not about lowest price. It's about best quality. It's interesting when you, uh, when I look at your, your hours for your shop there, you don't work every day of the week because you're riding. Right. Um, you know, we're not a six-day-a-week shop. Um, I made a decision that uh, motorcycling is the most important thing. Business comes second. So we're open Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, sometimes we're closed on Thursday if the weather is good or we got a trip planned, and we're certainly closed Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, we do have a showroom. People come in. Uh, they see the sign on the door, and, you know, some might be annoyed, but I think if you're a, a true motorcyclist, you can appreciate the sign. It doesn't say gone fishing. It says gone riding. And uh, so because most of our business is Internet-based, um, we can choose the hours that we work. When we do work, we work hard. But then we try to take as much time off, and we go out there and we're, you know, riding the hills and valleys and, you know, doing the Continental Divide and the Northwest Passage and riding to Alaska or just exploring. Um, it has to be fun. You know, I still have my passion from when I was, you know, a kid of 14, 15 on my Honda. I want to keep it that way. Now, this is your obviously your, your full-time business. So if, if somebody's out there listening now and they've got an idea for a product um, or something that they, they're thinking of turning into um, possible, uh, possibly a moneymaker for maybe it's motorcycling, um, something they're really into, what advice would you give them? Well, just don't give up. Um, I think that's one of my biggest strengths is that, you know, I get an idea and I just keep chewing on it and uh, I run into a problem, I figure out a solution. Um, for instance, uh, we have a, a tire iron bead breaker, which is a, a bead breaking device that uses tire irons to assemble into a, a compound levering device to break the, the tire bead, and then you use the irons to spoon the tire off to change the tires. It took me two years to figure that out. Um, I could have quit along the way, but I'm glad I didn't. Um, you know, we got a patent on it. We, we sell it all over the world. What that showed me was um, if you have a good idea and you keep working it, um, you solve the, the problems and, uh, you know, stick to it, it can become a success. You know, there's some ideas that aren't going to fly. And you need to ask your close friends and riding buddies, has this thing got any, any strength to it? Does it have legs to run on its own? And some don't. But if they do, uh, then you keep pushing it. 
And, uh, you know, Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb in a week. It took him a long time. Uh, making the product is probably the easiest part. Once you figure out how to make it, then you have to market it. You've got to let other people know about it, and they have to understand the benefit of, of making the purchase. You know, you have advertising issues. You have uh, uh, production issues. You've got a whole range of different things that you have to, to get into to bring a product to market. And it's not an easy task. I've learned a lot of painful lessons along the way. And uh, and yet, slowly, gradually, over 15 years, I'm starting to get the hang of it. So it, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but if you're patient and you've got a good idea, you know, share it with other guys and gals and uh, let them help you with it. Had a lot of mentoring as I went through this process. I'm blessed here in Seattle to have a lot of uh, motorcycle personalities and, and businesses like Turatech. And uh, uh, that provides a, an energy or a synergy that, that uh, was a benefit to me. But even if you're in, you know, Sioux City, Iowa, that doesn't mean that you can't find people locally that can uh, give you counsel and, and help you achieve your dream of bringing your widget into the motorcycling market. It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, build it and they will come sort of thing, though, is it? Because really getting it out there is the big deal. Getting people to know about it and getting people to buy it and getting some sort of, you know, distribution network. That's got to be the tough part. It is. It, it really is. Um, I, you know, I made a lot of products. I think we've got over 200 now. Um, making it was easy. Uh, getting it out in the market and getting people to find it and buy it was hard. You know, one way is is magazine ads. Another way is like on uh, Adventure Rider Radio. Um, but there's also the rally circuits. You know, you have to be willing to spend, you know, five to ten years uh, going to rallies and showing this product to people uh, or have other people do it for you, convince dealers to sell it. Um, you know, it's it's a long, hard road. Uh, you got to have passion for it. It does take some money. Um, we managed to do it quite modestly, but, uh, you know, if you've got the next, uh, best thing, then, you know, keep pushing at it, be realistic, but, uh, you know, don't be discouraged when you get the door closed in your face because, uh, you just keep going. You said you've been at it for 15 years now. How many years were you into it before it actually became viable? Well, we we started the company in 2000, so I was tinkering for a few years before that, probably 97, 98 is when I started. But in 2000, we, we filed the paper to uh, make Best Dressed uh, a legitimate business, you know, with the state and uh, uh, get our licensing and all that stuff. And at that point, it became viable? Well, no, it didn't. I, I was fortunate I had a a successful commercial cabinet business running. And so the cabinet business could support best rest for a while. And, uh, you know, we shared facilities and I'd turn on my desk to the left and I do the cabinet business and I turn my desk to the right and I do the motorcycle <laughs> business. So, you know, one was supporting the other and the cabinet business had, I don't know, 10 guys. And, you know, we, we did all sorts of stuff and worked in all the high rises in Seattle and, you know, worked for Microsoft and Boeing and all the big names. 
And pretty soon, the motorcycle business is doing better than the cabinet business. So, you know, it just took time. I mm-hmm. have to admit that if it hadn't been for, you know, another business holding best dressed up, uh, it would have been much harder. You know, I, I probably wouldn't have had the finances to keep the thing going and get it through the first five years. You know, the people that do businesses say, uh, you know, what, 90% of them fail in the first five years. Yeah. And usually it's for lack of capital and uh, the ability to keep it going. So we were blessed in that regard. So meanwhile, while you're doing all this, running the two businesses, et cetera, you're still going out riding. Oh, yeah. You, oh, and yeah. you'd mentioned that you rode the Continental Divide, Mexico to Canada. Right. Uh, in 2008, I did that with a buddy. We we uh, rented a U-Haul truck, put our bikes in the back, drove nonstop to Tucson, unloaded the bikes, uh, and then went to the border, southern border. And then for the next two weeks, we rode... Uh, he was on his 1150 GS. I was on a 1200 GS. We rode off-road all the way to Canada, and it was a great experience. That, that is truly a bucket list uh, ride. You're spending so much time out in the in the country. Uh, we'd ride for hours and hours and never see a single person. You know, beautiful country, uh, some dirt roads, a lot of gravel roads, a few hundred miles of pavement, but, you know, it was a 2,800-mile trip. And it was it was pretty much an off-road experience. Um, so I've done that. I actually did that one and a half times. I did another one the next year solo going southbound. A um, little too early in the year, ran into too much snow and had to throw in the towel. But I've also ridden to Alaska. Uh, buddy and I rode up to Alaska and went up to uh, Prudhoe Bay, you know, up the Dalton Highway over the, the Hall Road. Um, did that. Um, I created the Northwest Passage route, which goes east to west or west to east across the top of Washington. That's an off-road route um, that also can connect into the Washington backcountry discovery route and the Idaho route. Um, The Northwest Passage goes from Seattle uh, up to the Canadian border and then bounces over Hill and Dale and you can actually take it as far east as uh, uh, Roosevelt, Montana, and connect into the northern end of the Continental Divide route, and then ride from there all the way down to Mexico. So <laughs> that's really neat. you. You okay. set this route up yourself. Yeah, I did. Um, I had ridden, like I said, I've ridden most of the the all the pavement and almost all the four service roads in the state at one time or another. And I started looking at the maps and where I'd gone, and I said, you know, this would be a great uh, route to go east to west, off-road. Why don't I put all these bits and pieces together in a, in a continuous route? And I did that, you know, GPS mapping and paper maps and, you know, figuring it out. And most of it I can remember. I've got a unique ability. If I've been on a road before, I can remember that road and what's around the corner. Can't remember how to get home, but I know where that road is. <laughs> So um, I put it all together, and we've done it now with, uh, with groups of people for three years. We're coming up on our fourth. We'll be riding that in September. September 8th, we leave, and uh, probably 20 of us. And we, we head east and hit the dirt on top of Stevens Pass, and then it's pretty much dirt, gravel, forest roads, all the way to Sandpoint, Idaho, and then we're going to continue on to uh, 
Roosevelt, Montana, and uh, hook up to the Continental Divide route. That's really neat. And is this an organized trip that you sell, or is this just something you do with a bunch of friends? No, we never sell anything like that. <clears throat> in fact, you can go online to our website, bestrestproducts.com, and in the left tab, left column, there's a whole page dedicated to the Northwest Passage. Um, we do this for free. We've shared it. Um, you can watch an hour-long video that, that basically walks you through the process uh, with, uh, you know, there's part part lecture, part uh, movie action taken on the ride, part photos, but you can also download uh, daily itineraries and maps, uh, GPS tracks, so you can load this into your GPS and follow this on your own. But we never charge for any of these events. Um, I think once you, you, at least once I would go into that, it would change the flavor. Remember, I'm there to have fun. Mm -hmm. If I'm thinking about money, it changes things. I want to be there with people that I like to ride with or people that I haven't met that are, you know, interested in what we're doing and we have a great time so it's a voluntary thing you know there's no fee there's no real agenda we do have schedules and we we have certain social protocols that we follow um but it's uh it's a free event when you're setting up a trip do you sort of have a um like a theme to the trip like when just a personal trip of your own because um, you'd mentioned about doing the Continental Divide. Obviously, you, you know, you chose to do that for, for that reason, to say that you've done the Continental Divide or to look at it as a challenge. Um, do you find that that's uh, the way to plan a trip? Well, yeah, you have to look at what the trip's all about, um, you know, where you're going. If you're doing a Four Corners ride on pavement, uh, you're going to have different needs than if you're doing the Continental Divide, which is off-road and, you know, away from civilization. So you have to do a lot of planning, um, and I actually enjoy the planning almost as much as the writing, you know, with lists of what you're going to take, uh, you know, figuring out what obstacles you might encounter along the way, what tools you might need, what spares you have to carry, you know, coming up with contingencies for if this happens, then I do that. If that happens, I do this, um, you know, sharing that with the group and, and, you know, people perhaps carrying uh, uh, something that everybody could use. Not everybody has to bring a stove, uh, but everybody needs a tire repair kit because they might be by themselves. So um, knowing what the event's about, knowing uh, what the flavor of it is, um, who might be on it, that has a bearing on, on how you're going to prepare for it and what the adventure is going to be like. You wrote a book. Um, I guess it started out as an article. I think that's what you say in the book anyway. Um, How to Ride Off-Road. I did. Um, that, was, uh, that was something that happened as a result of a visit to Rawhide Adventures in California. They're a BMW off-road training academy. And I was there for a, uh, a vendor summit meeting, you know, to try to talk about how we could promote the sport of GS riding or, you know, GS standing for Galinda Strasse, off-road riding on big bikes. And uh, I thought to myself, well, what people need to have is, is not just an academy. They need to have kind of a, a basic primer that covers this st stuff on paper, which they can work on on their own, even if they can't make it to the class. And when they finally do take training, you know, they, they at least know what they're getting into. 
so I sat down and uh, started writing. And what I thought was going to be, you know, four or five pages, now it's up to over 120. And what it basically did was was lay out, um, you know, a variety of different things. Uh, why do we do this? Um, how do we do this? What do we do it on? What kind of gear do you take? Um, what do you do if you encounter ruts or you know, whoop-de-doos or, you know, how do you adjust your tire pressure? How do you fix a tire? All this stuff. And and that's a, a free resource available for download. Uh, you can download it on your computer or your smartphone. And uh, you get it on the website, How to Ride Off-Road. Um, it's been wildly successful. Uh, admittedly, there's a bit of advertising in there because I mentioned my products, but other products too. And it's gone around the world uh, I'm quite surprised at how how uh, widely read it is, and I I'm told that it's been translated into uh, several different languages, and uh, I get a lot of feedback from writers in various parts of the world that said, "Hey, I read your book, made a huge difference. Uh, you know, reminded me of things I I'd forgotten, uh, told me about things I didn't even know I didn't know, and uh, as a whole, it's made them a better writer. So I would consider that a, a great success." Um, simply because I've I've helped my fellow motorcycle riders um, become better at uh, something that I love doing myself, which is riding off road. And I especially like the price. You, <laughs> no, yeah. you can't go wrong on that if you're going to get a free book to download. And well, we uh, haven't had to give any refunds. <laughs> That's always handy. So you've got a few bikes now at home. Um, what do you have? Well, starting from biggest to smallest, I've got a BMW K12 LT, uh, you know, a big, heavy cruiser bike. I don't ride that very much, um, but I still have it. <clears throat> I've also got a BMW R1200GS, which I consider my two-up off-road bike with the wife on the back. Um, when we are going to go do some two-up riding, uh, that's what we'll take, and it's outfitted with some knobby tires so when the when the gravel starts we don't have to worry about that and uh, I ride fairly conservatively on the highway so it's, it's not a problem my solo uh, big bike uh, GS style is BMW F800 GS and that's what I've taken on uh, the Northwest Passage a couple of times oh I should mention that on the, uh, the Continental Divide I was on the R1200 GS and I handle oh, wow. that bike pretty well, even though I'm a small guy. Like I said earlier in the interview, it's uh, it's more about technique than it is brute force. Um, the other small bikes, I've got a, a KTM 450 EXC. And I ride that on the mountain trails uh, around Washington, particularly like the, the uh, forest down by Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams. Ride that on single track stuff, you know, go trails up on sides of mountains. Um, also have a uh, Honda XR650, which I keep at a cabin over on the Hood Canal. Uh, that way, if I'm over there and the, the itch hits me, I can come out of the cabin, jump on the bike, and head up into the mountains of the Olympic forests. And then I've got a couple of uh, four-wheel quads that uh, we put around the forest, too, over there at the cabin. So I'm well-mounted as far as motorcycles. I just wish I had more time. 
The the difference between the R twelve hundred and the and the F eight hundred. I mean, obviously, you're you're favoring the F eight hundred for doing um, the rougher stuff. Um, what's the difference you do find between the two? Well, there's you know approximately a hundred pound weight difference. Um, so the twelve hundred has got more weight. Uh, it's also wider. Um, I, I think it has better front suspension with the telelever in the front, um, and so it takes the bumps better. Um, but the 800 has an advantage in that it's a smaller bike, you know, narrower uh, at the engine at least. The, the cross-section on the, the saddlebags or panniers is the same on both bikes. But the, uh, the 800 uh, is more nimble. Uh, it, uh, the delivery of power is a little bit more instant. Um, and I can gear the 800 down, so I've got a very small front sprocket, very large rear. So, um, you know, my highway speeds, I, I seldom exceed 70, but the advantage is that uh, down at the low end, I can creep along in first gear and slip that wet clutch, and uh, ride, ride that bike like a tri- trials bike, very slow and precise, and that helps me get over the stuff that I encounter in the woods. You know, the, the passion for motorcycling, for me at least, has, has never gone away. And although you have to do it as a business, um, I've been blessed that uh, although I'm in the motorsports industry, I, I still hang on to the passion. You know, the, the idea, the excitement of going riding on my days off is still there. And I think that's an unusual thing because a lot of, you know, motorcycle dealers or uh, guys that work on bikes, when they get done at the end of their work week, they want to get away from it. Um, I don't have that. Um you know, when somebody comes into the shop, I can take the time to talk about motorcycles for a half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm always reading and, and watching other guys on Facebook and see what's going on there. And and uh, so the passion still remains. And uh, in a few years, when I decide to fully retire, uh, you know, sell Best Rest, then I can spend all my time uh, doing exactly what I love to do. And that's be on a motorcycle, uh, preferably up in the forest, preferably with the wife on the back, you know, exploring. Uh, I haven't been there. I want to go see that. Uh, It's a challenge. Well, that's all right. Let's let's take reasonable uh, risks to get there, but let's go have a good time. And I think that's what what this sport's all about, whether you're on the street or whether you're on the the gravel or forest service roads or whether you're riding a single track trail. Uh, it's all about the passion and hanging on to that and, uh, you know, waking up in the morning and looking forward to what you're going to ride the next day. But David, how have you managed to to keep that passion? Like you said, there's a lot of people who start in whatever industry. It doesn't matter if it's motorcycles or if it's snowboarding. A lot of people start out passionate. They get into it. They work at it. It becomes the daily grind. And then somehow, somewhere along the line, you can't even put your finger on it, but it seems to wane. And you do. You want to you wanna get away from it a little bit or it becomes old or you find yourself looking at something else. How have you managed to keep that passion? Well, that hasn't always been easy. I mean, there's been many days when I've been working at the shop, had the the overhead door open, you know, making making products, and I see five or six guys go by loaded, and they're obviously going on a trip, and I'm thinking, boy, I resent that. Here I am making stuff, 
and they're out having fun and doing exactly what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like any job, you have to take the good with the bad. And uh, so I, I clench my jaw, I go about my task, and I focus on the time that I can get off. Um, you know, the, the truth of it is that uh, I, I guess you could say I'm obsessed about motorcycles. Just about everything in my life revolves around that. In fact, when I met my wife on our first date, I said, listen, if you don't love motorcycles or if you can't learn to love them, this relationship's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she thought she thought I was mildly amusing at that point. <laughs> but uh, she, she did come to love it. She loves to ride with me. And uh, so, you know, from my very earliest beginnings until... Today, at the age of 60, um, I still have that passion. And uh, even if I don't have best rest in years to come, I'll still be riding motorcycles. And it actually will be a blessing not to have the, the pressures of business in some regard. But I'll always have my hand in something. You know, I, my mind is always working. And at 2 in the morning, I'm up drawing something, sketching something, coming up with something. And even if it's not my company, I'll still be providing ideas and and products to to somebody else that can build them and and take them from that point. So, you know, the drive to to the passion comes from deep within. And, uh, you know, I don't have a formula for how to hang on to it. I just know that uh, I've seen mine go up and down, but it never goes below the the point where it can't be uh, reignited and it, it burns with a bright flame. What's the next big trip for you? Well, we have uh, the Northwest Passage route on September 8th, and that's going to be, you know, across Washington into Montana. Um, I haven't looked beyond the end of of September. Um, Admittedly, although I I say I take time off from business, I do have demands that require me to be here, you know, part of the time. So I can't take a round-the-world tour or take a month off. Uh, that may come in the future, but uh, you know the truth of it is that my idea of of riding around the world, uh, I don't need that experience. There's so much of the Western U.S. that I haven't seen. You know, I could spend uh, another 50 years exploring uh, Oregon and uh, Arizona. Uh, I don't have to get very far to to scratch the itch. You know, I see a road going up over a mountain, whether it's paved or dirt. Uh, that's where I want to go. Well, David, thank you very much for coming on and talking about motorcycles, which I'm sure was not very difficult for you to do. No, it wasn't. Uh, We only spent an hour doing this. We could spend the rest of the day. But uh, it's always fun to talk to you, Jim, and uh, it's always fun when I talk to other riders. There's a common bond there, and it doesn't matter what you're riding. As long as you're writing, we have something in common, and and we can tell stories all day long. I absolutely agree. Thanks, David. All right. Take care, Jim. We're going to take a break for just a minute and talk about a show partner, but after that, stick around for Spencer Hill's Tent Review and Lawrence Hacking coming up right after this. Now, I want to talk about one of our new show partners, motomachines.com. You heard at the start of the show that they offer luggage systems protection, windshield, custom ABS plastic parts um, for models dating back to the 1970s, which is pretty amazing for anybody with an older bike. That's got to be a, a real asset right there. They also say they have the widest selection of luggage available on the market, and I'll give you an idea of some of the stuff they have. 
They For hard and soft luggage solutions, they carry the SIBO carrier for soft luggage. If you have not seen the SIBO carrier system for soft luggage, you got to go to their website and check it out. I think they've got a video on there that shows it as well. But it's a really slick system, a very, very simple rack system, and you can swap it out with different bags, etc. They also have the locket side carrier for the Hepco Becker hard luggage. If you haven't seen Hepco Becker, again, check out that because Hepco Becker makes an amazing plastic pannier that looks extremely durable. And I even saw one where you could put liquid in the middle. So you could put water in the middle. It's sort of like a double walled uh, box and you could fill up that double wall with water and put a little tap on it. Anyway, quite a a neat system. They've got 40 different um, options for pannier side cases and those. They've got a rear rack for Hepco Becker top cases with 30 different options for the top cases. Sport rack and mini rack for soft luggage. Um, And they've got the locket tank ring for tank bags and six different sizes of, of tank bags for those. In protection, they've got engine guards, tank guards, skid plates, center stands, headlight grills, handlebar guards, a lot of stuff there. So drop by the website, check it out. When you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. www.motomachines.com My name is Spencer Hill. Uh, I do product review uh, for ADV Moto Magazine, uh, advpulse.com, and my own site, www.thegeardude.com. This is the Big Agnes uh, Wyoming Trail 2 tent, and it's the 2015 version of it. And uh, I chose this one um, basically um, because Big Agnes has a, a a phenomenal reputation as far as uh, backpacking products go. And uh, that's kind of my background was uh, ultralight backpacking. So when I saw that they made a tent that was um, that had a garage style um, enclosure on it, I was like, oh, I, I got to try that. Uh, just because of the weight and uh, the durability that they can produce uh at such a lower weight than some of the other manufacturers it's just pretty phenomenal the thing that i've been struggling with actually is i kind of really like the idea of having a a motorcycle tent with a garage you know and you see them at the rallies and occasionally you'll see them at like a campground or something and whenever i would be doing like long traveling trips on the bike and stuff i'd be like oh man that looks cool and then i'd go online and i'd kind of look at the prices and the and the actual weight of the tents, and I'd be like, oh, that's not so cool. You know, so I started uh, looking around, trying to basically find a, a better option, you know, or at least the, the best option out of, uh, out of the ones that were available. You Both know? of the big rallies that I've gone to this, this summer, the Overland Expo and the TourTech Rally West, there's no trees I mean, you're out in the middle of a, a big field, right? So in ideal conditions, yeah, it'd be great to have like a tarp staked up. But then that's also a separate piece of equipment that you're carrying and possibly with separate poles or something like that. And this really creates um, a much bigger living space because instead of having like a, a, an extra tarp area, you can actually get out of your tent in the morning and still be enclosed within your your outer area and kind of, you know, have your own space and privacy more, 
than you would with a, just a separate uh, tarp. It was uh, phenomenal at the Overland Expo when it was snowing and, and raining. I could actually hang my riding gear up from the tent poles in the vestibule and actually let them dry out. And uh, I could hang out in there. I made my coffee in the morning. Uh, but it actually made just as big of a difference at the Tour Tech rally this year when it was, uh, it was like 106, 108 degrees out. So uh, that it stood out because everybody else was trying to hide in this few trees and stuff. And my buddy and I that had taken this tent with us actually were having an awesome time because we actually had shade, unlike everyone else. Um, my first, first impression when I pulled it out of the box was the tent poles were too long. And uh, I was convinced that uh, I wasn't going to even test the tent because I was like, these tent poles are too long. Because they're wide, they're uh, I want to. They are 27 inches long, right? And uh, they're kind of unsettlingly long. But um, thankfully, I decided to go with it anyway, and it didn't end up being that big of a deal. But they are longer than you would uh, normally see on like a backpacking tent or something. But for all of us with adventure bikes with hard boxes and stuff, it's not really a big deal. It just sits across the top, you know. On my way down to the Overland Expo. Uh, I stayed uh, a couple places in California, and uh, it was totally dry, and I didn't have to stake the tent out at all, and uh, I was in campgrounds, and it was gorgeous, and I was like, this is amazing. You can get up in the morning, and instead of having to like put your riding gear on last, you can you know change in your vestibule and stuff, so I was like, this is great. Then I got to the Overland Expo, and uh, there was 40-mile-an-hour winds the, the first day that I got there. And uh, I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is going to be a real challenge for this tent, you know, because I knew it was a three-season tent. Um, but once I got it up uh, and actually staked it out, um, it, it did well in the wind. Um, and then it started raining, and it rained for probably 24 hours straight. I stayed completely dry. The fly uh, is far enough away from... Um, the base of the tent that in sometimes in backpacking tents, the, the lower base, you'll get some moisture, you know, and, uh, this actually did a good job of, of keeping that whole area dry. And it'd be a good time to point out that I, I actually didn't use the footprint for this tent because I was trying to save some weight. So, and I actually didn't get burned on that, which was pretty interesting. So I was able to go along without it. And, um, condensation wasn't bad at all um and i think that's because the lower part of the vestibule is very open as far as there's probably about five or six inches where the rain fly doesn't come down to the to the ground so you get a, a good amount of airflow through there which is kind of annoying but also i think that's what keeps it from getting any condensation in there it did great and uh, i was very impressed through the the first night of the overland expo um, and then it started snowing and keep in mind that it's a, it's definitely a three season tent. They say that it's a three season tent, uh, but I had no other options. <laughs> so it snowed and it, it snowed all day. And, uh, basically I, I found it's, uh, it's limit, uh, the next morning, Saturday morning when there was tent, a lot of snow stacked on top of my tent and then it was still raining or it had been raining and then that's finally – and the kind of leaking I got was just from – it seemed to be from the snow uh, sitting on top there, and it couldn't handle 
I mean, it's no rainfly is a hundred percent waterproof, you know. So it was just the uh, everything uh, adding up on it, and then I finally got some drops coming through in the morning. I don't know that anybody had a tent at the Overland Expo that kept them a hundred percent dry. So I, I don't, I, I definitely don't fault the tent because it's a three season tent, and those were some of the most extreme camping conditions i'd ever camped in you can fit a motorcycle in there if you wanted to i can back my ktm 690 in there uh, and i can't quite close the front um but it i mean it's a good size um i don't know why people really want to put their entire motorcycle inside the tent with them uh that's not really my style but um yeah i think it's a great size i was able to hang up my riding gear have my panniers in there with me and a camping chair and my my camping tent. So, I mean, it's it's a, a definitely an adequate amount of living space. Uh, overall, I think it's a great tent. I think I think if it was uh, specifically made for uh, motorcycle travel, I think it would be perfect. Like if they just altered a couple of the things that I talked about. Um, the pros are that it offers you privacy when you're touring and stuff. Um, and it gives you a lot more options to actually kind of travel in a normal sense than living off your motorcycle. It kind of gives you good storage. The cons is just that it, it weighs 10 and a half pounds. You know, you can't get around that. And that the tent poles are 27 inches long. They call it a, a car camping tent, you know, for coolers and dogs and, and that kind of stuff. But if you think about it, it's quite remarkable how well it works for motorcycling for not being intended for that purpose at all. I think it's a great tent. Uh, I did want to point out that it is lighter than the other motorcycle style tents by four and five pounds on average. www.thegeardude.com Lawrence Hacking has been a lifelong motorcyclist. He started racing in 1971. He's raced all around the world and he hasn't stopped since. He's represented Canada at the International Six Days Enduro. He's run the Baja 1000, the Baja 500, the Mexican 1000, the Rally Mongolia on three different occasions. Um, and a bunch of other ones that I won't go into listing here. In 2001, he ran the Paris-Dakar, um, and he became the first Canadian to complete uh, the 21-day event across Africa on a motorcycle. And in 2005, he wrote a book called To Dakar and Back. That book is still available and a worthwhile buy for you. Lawrence has been involved with different rallies that have gone on over the years, including his own annual event called Lawrence Hacking's Overland Adventure Rally, which is a very successful rally held in Ontario, Canada, each year in July. Well, Lawrence, um, thanks very much for coming on, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. You have done the Dakar. Um, you have done the Baja 1000, the 500, the, the Rally Mongolia, uh, yeah. which I didn't know about, actually, in, until I was looking at your information. Yeah. Um, you've represented Canada, the ISDE, six times. And uh, I think you've traveled to, what, more than 50 countries while you've been doing this? Yeah, it's been... <laughs> when you add it up, it's, it's, a, it's quite a list of things uh, to, that I've done. Yeah, and, you know... 
I, I, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do these things and, and uh, live to tell the tale as well. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been good. You know, I just get up in the morning every day and start making phone calls and sending emails and, um, and uh, trying to make things happen. Uh, also organizing different events over the years. And it, it's really my life. You know, I really enjoy it and I, and I um, get a lot of satisfaction out of doing these things. It's really neat because it does remind me of Simon Pavey, who I know is a friend of yours, um, yeah. because Simon also, you know, sort of lives the life I, I think a lot of us would do, the picture is the dream life. Mm-hmm. And you're doing the same thing. Somewhere along the line, when everybody else had to grow up and get a job, you managed to hang in there and uh, and keep doing this. And the the fact that you're, you're, you're not even just doing it, this is still a passion for you. Yeah, you know, it is, you know, it really, I really am motivated to do a lot of things on motors, with motorcycling and riding motorcycles. Uh, Simon is a, is a great example of a, a guy that uh, really has spun a, a good racing career into a great uh, working uh, business. And uh, he, uh, he's a good guy. He's a really nice guy, actually. He was just here a few weeks ago for my Overland Adventure Rally. And Simon's come every year for three years. He does uh, teaches schools here, and uh, we have a great time together. We like-minded people, you know, are uh, kind of attracted to each other. And Simon and I are, I think, cut from the same cloth. You also published a book called "To Dakar and Back." Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, you know, after the Dakar, um, well, actually, during correctly uh, during the Dakar, I wrote little notes every day to try and remember what happened because. In 21 days, uh, a lot of things happen, and the pace of that event is extremely fast. So I just had little post-it notes in the, in, uh, the description of the route every day just to remind me every evening, you know, I uh, just wrote down a few notes. And then I turned that into about 158 pages of what I would call a book. And from there, a friend of mine, Will DeClerc, I turned it over to him. And Will is kind of a professional writer. And he filled it out to about uh, 300 pages of something, a manuscript we could present to ECW Press. And uh, they bought it, first publisher, and <laughs> they uh, said, we'll do it. And uh, from there, it's, it's gone quite well. Um, you know, it's been on sale, I think, since 2005, I think. And, uh, um, yeah, we sold, qu- sold quite a few copies. And people, re- I, there's some great comments on Amazon uh, about people who uh, have read the book, and, and that's quite satisfying. I, I must not have heard you right there, Lawrence, because I thought you'd said you took it to the first publisher and they bought it. And of course, everyone knows that's not how books go. Yeah, yeah. ECW Press has a, has a history of it's a, it's a Canadian publisher in Toronto, and I, they bought it. Yeah, they, it took about a year from when we presented it. You know, it was in no hurry. Um, and they bought it and, uh, and um, they published it and they've, it's done quite well. Uh, it's very satisfying to see uh, you know, your, your name in print and, and have a book published. It's a nice thing to say. I was quite, when the contract was signed, I remember that it was just you know, a special day. And, um, and uh, it's nice to see. You know, uh, it's nice to uh, have that, his, that story documented for uh, for people to read it's it, you know i've you know got a lot of feedback from other people who've read it and they really liked it they were surprised at how personal it got um uh sometimes because really during the dakar the emotions uh run from the every extreme you know very highs to extremely you know low extreme and lows you know thinking that the, uh, the event is over numerous times 
And at the time when I was riding the rally, I thought, well, you know, I've done my homework. Why isn't things? Why aren't things going the way I would like to them to go? Why isn't it smooth sailing? But it is, you know, with the world's toughest motorsports events, so you can't. Everything can't go your way. And I'm a great believer in that. Uh, there's uh, everything. Ha- there's a good side to everything, and the good side to having uh, you know some tough times during the Dakar was it made a great great book. I think a lot of people look at the Dakar and think, yeah, I, I could do that. I mean, it doesn't seem all that bad. You know, I could get out there and push myself. Try and give us a, a bit of an idea, if you can, <laughs> sort of what that feels like to run well, it. Well, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. You know, first of all, you have to put it put each person's position in, in, into perspective, I'd done the, the six days, the international six days, five times prior to the Dakar. So that's a really good kind of background in establishing, you know, how, um, you know, endurance events can go. And, and that's grueling, too. That's very, it's technically very, very tough, physically very tough events, but six days uh, and still not easy to finish, uh, all in, in various different countries in the world as well. So you have to adapt to the riding and the traveling and all that kind of thing, uh, the food and everything. Um, so it's a good it's a good basis of uh, you know trying to attempt the Dakar is to have that kind of depth of uh, experience to draw on. And really, in my mind, motorcycling is all experience. The the, the wealth of knowledge and experience you have behind you. Can, as long as you you know you know how to use it, you, it can serve you well for all sorts of different types of events. Even if they're not a, the same event, you can use the the information you've got uh, to predict what's going to happen and then prepare accordingly and and be psychologically tough. I guess is uh, the thing. So riding the Dakar, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not easy. Like you know, if and I get asked a lot a lot of questions about uh, from people who are. Um, you know, thinking of doing it, I get approached quite a few, you know, every year basically by someone who thinks, is thinking about taking on something like that. And I usually, you know, first of all, ask them their background, what their, what their experience is, and then, and then say, well, you know, if you're not a really, really good rider, then you better be in Olympic level physical condition because, you, you know, if you're lacking in some qualities and, uh, and abilities, you can compensate that for that with having strength in others. Um, but I think, you know, in my mind, when I set out to it, I was in, I think, pretty good shape. I worked nine, nine months full-time getting ready for the event, um, you know, working out every day and preparing the bike and researching everything and, and doing the very best I could to, to go into it as, with a good idea of what, how to prepare and be well prepared to doing it. But when you're, when you're riding the event, it's, it's, you know, then you really discover who you are as a person and how far you are um, how much, where your limits are, and how far you are, uh, how f- how how hard you can push, and and how much you can ask of yourself to keep going, and how f- how focused you are on the on the uh, goal at the end, because you know I really like mo- riding motorcycles, but 21 days in a row that's a lot of riding, so you really have to enjoy the ride. And is is it technical that that really gets you, or is it the, just the endurance, just doing it day after day? Yeah, that's you know. It's technical riding in some cases. It's it's every day, all day long. Extreme heat, fatiguing. You know, funky food. Sleeping in a tent. Uh, you know, navigating in the desert. Uh, there's all sorts of things that can catch you up. Um, 
you know, so the, I asked all the questions about why people don't finish ahead of time. And, and quite often, uh, in French, they say uh, uh, people uh, tombe en pan de morale, which means uh, really run out of uh, mental strength. Um, and there's a few different reasons why. And, and you know, the, the problems will start compounding on you. If you run out of gas, well, you can solve that problem one day. But if you get in late, then you're, you're say, if you lose sleep one night, uh, ultimately, you can keep going, but you know it'll wear you down to the point where you make a mistake that'll put you out. So, uh, you, what you have to do in the Dakar is really always be aware of time and and best use of your time and and keep time in, in, on your side so that if you do have a problem, you can fix it and then keep going. But uh, Simon actually, uh, he's got a lot more Dakar experience than me. He's he's done it ten times and finished eight, and the most recent one. Uh, he was telling us the stories this year at the Overland Rally about what they went through. And it was, it was really an unbelievably tough event, uh, you know, over 40 degrees Celsius, dehydrated not numerous times, uh, bikes quitting because of uh, salt corrosion in the wiring. And, and anybody who finished this, this, this past one was had a lot, uh, you know, really a lot of uh, good things come their way because it was very, very tough to finish. And, um, you know, it's, you know, be, you know you, I often say that um, if the very, the biggest, biggest day in the Dakar started in your backyard and you slept in your own bed and had nice dinner the night before, a lot of people could finish that one day. But the, the factors are that you're sleeping in a tent in Africa uh, day after day, um, fixing your own bike and, you know, with very little in, you know, that's, that's what, um, where the difference lies in, uh, in, um, you know, the challenge, I guess, is the best way to describe it. You know, it, there's a lot of factors, you know, the fact that you're a long way from home, um, you know, you're on your own out there, uh, in the middle of the Sahara Desert is unbelievably, for you know formidable formidable uh, terrain so uh, to keep your wits about you and keep going is 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 the challenge i think so i remember when i was talking with Simon Pavey last time about his run in the Dakar and he's uh, we're got talking about money and uh, i think he was saying i think he was saying it was $75,000 a bike it was going to cost him or something like that some huge amount of money this is not, that's not a small amount of money that's that's yeah. um you know half of somebody's home or or maybe sure. slightly less um there's no real money in it if you win um there's the chance of death you you beat yourself to almost to death you run yeah. yourself until you're almost at your wits end as yes. you have in your book so i uh, just run through quickly why do we do this uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's. Uh, you know. Yeah. Lawrence, that's supposed to be a really easy question. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, I, I'll tell you why. Why I do it is because I like uh, a challenge, and I like testing myself, and I like being able to um, then. Um, you know, there's results, so you can you're measured against your competition, you, and and it's recognizable worldwide. That when you say you finished the Dakar, well, virtually everybody in the world—not everybody, but you know—millions of people know that that's a, a, quite an accomplishment. It, it's exactly like saying, I, you know, if you're for a mountain climber, you've climbed Mount Everest. And uh, hmm. I guess there's some sort of 
I often say with that and $5, I'll get you a cup of coffee, a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But um, no, actually, it's not true. You know, doing the Dakar has been the best thing that ever, one of the very best things that's ever happened to me has changed the direction of my life in a very positive way. Uh, you know, it gives me credibility that served me well f- doing many, many other events. It's opened so many doors. And it's really, uh, you know, set my life's path on a, on a very, very nice direction that I'm very happy with. So uh, there, there's one good benefit. But it is very nice to, you know, be able to say that, um, you know, I finished the Dakar, especially I finished an African Dakar. And, I, and the one that I did was the, the last classic, they call it, which went from Paris, France to, D- to Dakar, Senegal. And it's never happened since then. And so I think that the Dakar that I did was really had the feel of one of the originals is original, you know, Dakars where there were people, uh, you know, really putting up with a lot. And, you know, I've studied the Dakar and I know a lot of the, you know, well-known Dakar riders and drivers from over the years and the stories that they are able to tell and and things are, are extremely fascinating. It's really uh, true, true adventure in this modern day and age where, you know, everything's kind of, uh, contrived and artificial and things like that. In a lot of, a lot of cases anyways, it's, it changes every year though. You know, the, the pattern and the feel and the, and the goal, it's always changed. Uh, the rules change, uh, locations have changed destinations. And, um, that's what, you know, makes it interesting as well. It's not always the same course or track or anything. Yeah, and like you said, it's known the world over as the most grueling. Uh, what would it be classed as? Automo or, or, or automotive, or would it be? Or, or um, yeah, it's a motorsports event. Yeah, it's it, and the the audience is massive. You know, it's uh, I don't even know the numbers, but mil- literally millions of people are watching it live on TV every year. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's 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 up there with the Olympics and Formula One and and uh, World Cup soccer and things like that as far as an audience goes. So, um, you know, in Canada, I'm not so sure that it's, uh, you know, as, you know, well-known, but it's still among the people that, you know, I guess, I don't know, that are interested in that kind of thing are, are um, it's, it's considered kind of the holy grail of, of adventure and racing and competition. And have you been back to the Dakar? Did you run it more than the once? Um, I went back in 2010 to South America in a, an off-road race truck, but it didn't go very far. <laughs> uh, did you quit before the, the race got going? Well, on the second day it quit, yeah, which was, you know, just a matter of, um, you know, that's, that's a different league altogether as far as money goes. But I said I was going, so I went. I wasn't tested. I knew it wasn't tested, but um, I don't want to go back on my word and say, uh, you know, uh, I raced not a lot of money, but enough money to go there, and uh, it didn't. It wasn't tested properly. I'm still working on the same truck. I've changed a lot to it, and uh, it'll go to an event sometime in the near future. I'm not sure which one. Uh, the Dakar. It, now it's the, the cost to do it in a on a bike or a car is really multiplied numerous times over since I went in 2001. So you really now it's more or less. How good you are at generating sponsorship money, <laughs> rather than anything else, but uh, that's still a challenge as well, you know. To and uh, you know, you to raise a lot of money to go or be independently wealthy is um, is about the only way I I know how to do it. Um, 
that well, I could, what kind of money are we talking about here for if you want to take your bike and, and race in the Dakar? Oh, for for a motorcycle now, well, a motor a prepared rally four fifty is probably about forty thousand uh, dollars to buy a new KTM, which is probably you know the best way to go right now. And then you probably to have a good chance at finishing, um, you know, you need another. But yeah, if you could, you would probably go for a hundred thousand dollars Canadian right now and have a good chance at finishing. Uh, it depends on the support package. You know, you can go on a class called My Moto, which is uh, mile is in French M A L L E, which means uh, uh, case, I guess, a uh, metal case. And that's how I did the Dakar. Is you didn't have a support team behind you. You just had a, this metal box and two spare wheels, and off you went, and you had to do all your own work. Well, now. When I, when I did it, there were quite a few people in that class, and that was kind of the, the way you did it. And people who had a support team with a mechanic was were in a different league. Um, but that's kind of gone by the wayside, and there's very, very few people who actually enter that class and try and finish without outside support, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And uh, that would save you some money. But, um, you know, it's it's still, uh, I think you'd still need about $100,000 to, to go and have a good chance, have enough tire, spare uh, tires and, and uh, things like that to do it. It's very expensive. I didn't realize that you were doing all your own maintenance there. So um, yeah. when you're coming back each night before you can jump in the sack, you've got to do your, your bike maintenance. That, that's got to really, really add to the pressure. Yeah, you know... Especially if things are going wrong, you know. If you read the book, you'll see that my, as I said, my my Dakar wasn't smooth sailing, and I had to solve quite a few little problems. But um, you know, I'm used to it from the the, the international six days. Is uh, that's how that that event works? Is once the event starts, only the rider can touch the motorcycle, so you have to change all your own filters and tires and things like that, and you have a very limited num- uh, amount of time to do that in. So that's part of the part of the fun. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that's old school kind of way of doing things. But in, in that particular event, that's what you need to be able to do is work on your own bike. So in the Dakar, when I did it, it was kind of uh, business as usual. Well, again, the book is uh, called To Dakar and Back, and I think you can get it just about anywhere. I got mine on Kindle, um, but uh, you can get it at Amazon. We'll put a link in the in the show notes to that. I want to talk to you about um, about journalism, though, because you've sure. been a, a moto journalist since uh, 2001, basically. Yeah, yeah, it, it's been good. Um, after I finished the Dakar, um, the editor of Cycle Canada got a hold of me and said, uh, you know, could you test and, and write stories about off-road bikes and I said sure that'd be great and uh, I couldn't I considered that my job for almost nine years um, it was a part-time job and I did a lot of other things during that time as well um, but it was great because uh, you know people um, you know it was good for me uh, it's a great way to do things it actually opened a few doors as far as doing events goes because once you go as a racer to an event and you're also a journalist, you can kind of guarantee support, uh, um, exposure for your supporters. So, for example, I went to the uh, ISDE in Czech Republic in 2002 and I uh, was able to raise, uh, you know, enough support to go for a reasonable amount of, you know, without paying too much money on my own. And I had a good, a good, <laughs> I had a good, it was a great story and it turned out some be- with some beautiful pictures from my friend Bill Petro. And uh, it was a great time, uh, and I was able to finish and come back with the story. And but it's still, you know, I still had the uh, some ups and downs there, and it made for a, a good magazine story. 
It's always the ups and downs that uh, that do make the good story. I mean, nobody wants to read about you going to a race and everything went fine, and yeah, you won, and that's yeah. boring, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's I've got a pattern of doing stuff like that. Well, I went to the Rally Mongolia for the first time in two thousand and five, uh, and I started the story out for Cycle Canada again by running out of gas in front of what they call a yurt or a, a gare in the middle of nowhere in Mongolia. And uh, so that's a great lead-in for a, a really good story. I mean, it, you know, when you, you're out in the middle of nowhere and you find some gas from a lady that goes out <laughs> on her own motorcycle and comes back with a, a jug of gas and you continue on, that's, um, that, that in itself is a, is a great way to um, start an adventure story. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, when you, when you think about life, because we're always interested in these stories where things go wrong. Adversity, and we talk about this a lot on this show about adventure and how we're defining it. And adversity always seems to come up. And adver- adversity really makes our, our story a lot of times. It's those things that color something, you know, and it doesn't have to be terrible, but that really colors things. Yet in life, for some reason, we have this thing of where we don't want adversity. We don't want to face that sort of stuff. It's it's something that everyone seems to shy away from. Yet in hindsight, it is the factor that makes a life interesting. Yeah. Well, I've got a long-winded, you don't have enough time to, <laughs> to hear that. But humans in general want to be able to predict what's going to happen next. And uh, but the only way to learn and, uh, you know, you're learning well, you learn from your mistakes and I've made lots of them. Um, but, you know, the, when things go wrong, you really do, to, you know, you, you have to solve your own problems for sure in rallying, you know, any of this kind of stuff. If you're not able to fix your own flat tire or, or you know, figure out how to find gas in the middle of nowhere or something like that, I mean, you know, that's what uh, that's what's interesting about um, uh, doing these kinds of things is, is jumping in the, into the deep end and and solving your own problems and then uh, living to tell the tale. Um, and I like it when things go wrong because then you know you never know. <laughs> you got to use uh, some Im- imagination and and um, and some initiative and and you know uh, a little bit of MacGyverism or whatever you want to call it to fix things. I think that's fun. And uh, it could be that, you know, I, I grew up on a farm in Manitoba and, you know, farmers, they're the best at kind of figuring things out, you know, and, and making do with what the be- making the best with what you've got and fixing things in the field and stuff. So I think it's actually an extension of my background in a, on a farm. You, um, you're now writing for Mojo Magazine, which is a, a Canadian magazine. Yeah. Yeah, um, Mojo, Mojo is a, a good magazine. Um, Glenn and Gwen Roberts are the publishers, and they uh, they seem to appreciate the you know that I contribute to their magazine. So it's it's been good, yeah. And uh, you know, I'm planning this fall to do some more, uh, concentrate more on journalism coming up. And how about another book? Is there another book in the wings? Uh, there's sure been a lot of fun stories to tell as a result of it. I'd like to do another book. Um, I kind of. The reason, well, there's a couple of different reasons why I haven't gone that way, is uh, I'm pretty busy, you know, and that's really time-consuming. Uh, but I'm still busy doing things that would make great stories in a in a compilation of, you know, adventures since the Dakar ended in 2001. So there, it, I would like to do it. I'm not sure if um, if it'll ever if I'll ever realize it, but you n- never say never, right? It might happen. 
But you were also doing your own overland adventure rally on top of all these other things that you're doing. And, yep. and you just told me a little while ago about one other one that you did um, right before this. So so this July, and this would mark the 3rd, uh, I think it was the first, July 3rd through 5th, it's just passed. Yep. Um, it's called Lawrence Hacking's Overland Adventure Rally. And that's held uh, in Ontario, Canada in a place called Campville. Um, tell us about that. Well, you know, I decided decided to do the rally um, not on a whim, but I, I, you know, I, I have done numerous different events over the years. In 2005 and 2006, uh, myself and a group of other people organized uh, uh, rounds of the World Enduro Championship in Parry Sound, Ontario. And uh, that was really satisfying to do. Uh, they turned out very well. And since then, we went on to organize things like the Canadian Enduro Championship, which was a, kind of a revised version of that uh, that World Enduro Championship. And with that, that those events are still ongoing. Uh, I got to the point where I was more, focused more on adventure riding, and that was kind of where my background or my equity in in the sport lay or lies. And um, I decided to do uh, kind of a standalone adventure rally with my kind of philosophy behind it, which is just, it's a very social event. It's very easy. It's for everybody. Um, and it's just basically fun. So um, what I did is I contacted Simon Pavey and asked him to come out. And I got, uh, the, I had the ability to generate some funds from BMW Canada to bring him in. And that was kind of the nucleus to uh, the next two. Um, and the rallies are, quite, are very well received by the adventure rider community. I mean, uh, it's quite easy riding. It's a, there's a one-day kind of challenge ride, 200 and so k's around uh, the beautiful roads in Ontario. Um, there's a, a challenge where they have people have to find clues and answer questions, uh, and they can win all sorts of prizes that are provided for by the, the many sponsors. Um, and then in the evenings, we have presentations by very interesting people that come in to to do that. So it's kind of an opportunity to for pe- uh, the average guy to come in and hear Simon's presentation or uh, a fellow by the name of Lyndon Poskett came this year. He's a really nice guy. Um, and uh, these, these guys are real, living, the, living the dream. They're, they're, they're adventure riders at, a, at the very highest level and they, uh, they're really interesting, nice people to talk to and listen to. Uh, so that's basically the rally in a nutshell. It's, it's good fun, good fun to do. It's very satisfying to do and and uh, I think it serves a good purpose as well because uh, adventure riders, uh, it's, it's kind of a meeting place for, for those types of riders and, and a chance to kind of show off their bike and their, their gear and, and see and talk to people within the industry. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's basically a really nice weekend uh, where it's, it's an, uh, an adventure rider weekend. And it's been, I have not been to one, and I, hopefully I'll, I'll get there, um, but it sounds like it's been wildly successful. You, I mean, you're getting a lot of people to this event. You've got a whole load of sponsors that have come on board yeah. and said that, yeah, they want to be there. I mean, Yeah, I think we, uh, you know, we entertain about 200 or so people. It, there's people, you can come for free. So if you don't want any of the, uh, you know, the added uh, kind of the meal package or uh, the camping package or to come and listen to the presentation. You're, you're welcome to come and look at the expo for free. But most people sign up and buy a, a, what I call the whole enchilada pass, which covers everything, and, and you walk around like you own the place. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, 
and uh, it's only a couple hundred dollars, and um, yeah, people like it. You know, it, it's it's good value actually, um, and you know, most people go home with some sort of prize, and and um, yeah, it's I would say call it a success. I don't know if. Uh, and it depends how you measure success. I, I call it a success because it, it entertains a lot of people. So, yeah. And when is it set up to run for next year? Um, it looks like July 10th weekend. Uh, we moved it ahead a little bit this weekend because of the Pan Am Games, and we'll move it back to the July 10th weekend, I think. I, I haven't looked at the, the exact dates, but it's somewhere around in there. So for those who are interested, you can go to the website overlandadventurerally.com and you'll be able to follow what's, uh, what's happening for next year. Well, Lawrence, thank you very much. And I look forward to one day getting to your adventure rally. If I'm there while you're, while you're running, I'm definitely going to, to come and be a part of it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motortour.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Moto Machines offers luggage systems, protection, windshields, custom ABS plastic parts, and more for over 700 different models dating back to the 1970s. Moto Machines carries the widest selection of luggage available on the market, and all accessories are bolt-on ready for a custom fit. Visit them at motomachines.com. That's motomachines.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much for listening. And we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. But before you do, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Send us your feedback, your comments, show suggestions. Go on to Facebook. Make sure you like our page on Facebook. A great fun connecting through Facebook. We've got a lot of great things that we post on there. Funny and, and informative. None of it boring. Follow us on Twitter at ADV Rider Radio. Now, of course, time to get out there and ride your bike. No excuses. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media. And special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works very hard in the background, setting up all these interviews and getting everything going for the show. And remember, when you drop by one of our show partners, our advertisers, the sponsors, 
make sure you let them know that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so that they know what they're doing is working because it's so great to have those companies supporting this show and we can make the show better and make it last longer for you, the listener, because that's what it's all about. Graham Field, Overland Travel author from the UK, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 